okay, we are, we're feeling low due to this reality of injustice, but we are empowered by creativity and a chance to respond. And we can use systems thinking and other forms of design to respond and, and make things we think make the world better. But of course, that's very much informed by humility and the ability to collaborate with people who are fellow leaders from communities around the world. I then show examples of our research projects that we do here in Space Enabled. A lot of the work I'm doing is asking how to design systems that either take today's space technology and make it more accessible to those who usually don't have access to it, or to design the next generation of space technology that can in itself be designed with sustainability and accessibility in mind. Episode 78 with Professor and Aeronautical Engineer, Dr. Danielle Wood. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I'm your host, Dario Kalmis, an artist, writer, brand consultant, and generally curious fellow. And each week we bring you a conversation from the pool of black genius to inspire, engage, and help you unleash your own imagination. Our guest today, Dr. Danielle Wood, is a shining example of how passion and perseverance can lead you to the stars. She defied the odds, shattered expectations, and carved her own path to become a leader in the world of space exploration and technology. Hailing from the city of Orlando, roughly 50 miles from Kennedy Space Station, Dr. Woods would gaze at rocket launches in her teen years, decades before she would go on to work for the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, NASA for short. But it wasn't always smooth sailing for Dr. Wood. In fact, she was once told that her grades weren't even good enough for grad school, a belief that took her years to overcome. But I'll let her tell that story. We'll delve deep into her incredible journey through the worlds of aeronautics and engineering, and finally landing at her current position as faculty member and head of the Space Enabled Lab at MIT, her alma mater. Dr. Woods shares with us stories of Black visionaries who, throughout history, have woven tales of space exploration and imagination, from Phyllis Wheatley's celestial poetry to Henrietta Cordelia Ray's prophecies of interstellar travel in the 20th century. But this episode isn't just about looking back. It's about looking forward. Dr. Wood challenges us to harness the power of space technology to address real-world issues, such as environmental justice within our own communities. So join us as we embark on this cosmic voyage with Dr. Danielle Wood and discover how she unveiled the universe, one challenge at a time. Be sure to share some of your thoughts on today's episode with us over on Instagram at Black Imagination. And if you want to stay updated on all of our latest news and exclusive content, be sure to subscribe to our newsletter linked in the show notes. And if you love what we do and want to support the show, be sure to also click that support link also in the show notes. And without further ado, Dr. Danielle Wood. Dr. Danielle Wood, um, it is such a pleasure to have you here on the Institute of Black Imagination. This is a conversation that, as you know, I have been dying to have, and I'm super excited to explore uh, the heavens with you today. So welcome, welcome, welcome. 
Thank you so much. It's a privilege and an honor to be here. Uh, so hailing all the way from MIT directly, um, our first question really, who would you like to dedicate today's conversation to? Yes, uh, today I am really thankful to have recently visited uh, the grave of my great-grandmother in North Carolina, and her name is Estelle Davis. But today I'd like to dedicate this conversation to Estelle and the broader range of relatives from Union Mills in North Carolina. W- wonderful. And could you, could you tell us her name? This is Estelle Davis. Estelle Davis. Okay. Estelle, this one is for you. So just to hop right in, like, what's exciting you right now? Yes, what excites me is also what scares me, but I'm an optimist person, so I'm going to tell you what's worrying me that's going to turn into creative design. <laughs> yes, what, what's exciting me is that uh, humans are entering a period of our, our overall history in which our ability to impact locations beyond planet Earth is increasing day by day. And we're going to make choices as a generation uh, in these next coming years that are going to impact how humans interact with the cosmos for the future eternity. Wow. I mean, I know, so we're, we're recording this at the end of August, 2023. Um, and many of us just witnessed um, India um, landing a craft on the South Pole of the moon. Am I correct? You know, what, is, what does something like that mean for us? I mean, is that part of the conversation that you're speaking about right now, the things that you're excited about? Sure, that's a great example. The broader way to say it is that all over the world, in every single region, every continent, uh, there are organizations, both government teams and private company teams and universities that are interested in being involved with the endeavor of space exploration. And this means that we're seeing so many different kinds of players get involved by building satellites, using data from satellites for answering policy questions, sending, exploring missions to places like the moon. My own team, for example, recently was part of a big international project. We were collaborating with the government of the United Arab Emirates, so the UAE Space Agency and their research teams invited us as MIT to put a small experiment, less than a cell phone size, onto a rover that they were trying to land on the moon. So our small experiment went to the wheel of the rover. The rover went inside a bigger lander that was built by a company from Japan. And then a U.S. rocket launched the whole thing, rocket, lander, rover, our small experiment. It traveled all the way to the moon, and after a lot of great technical effort, it got to the moon, but we, we crash-landed, to be honest. But we were trying to be, so we're on the moon, but just in pieces, it's not working. But we were trying to be one of the first private-led organizations uh, to be able to land safely on the moon, and landing on the moon is very hard, so we're really celebrating the achievement of this team from India, because just being able to land safely and operate after landing is a huge accomplishment. You know, th- I find this so fascinating because I think that here on the ground, um, so many things, I mean, we have so many kind of like invisible barriers and boundaries, right? Things that define not only, you know, one's personhood, right, individually, but also collectively, right? These groups that we call the United States of America, um, places we call India, right? These invisible borders. But it sounds like with space, like this is a very like multinational collaborative aspect. Like how is working in this, how is working in this area different um, how does it pull different types of collaboration than one would find in other industries? 
That's a great question. I love talking about history, so I'll give a historical answer first and then a present-day answer. One of the great stories about the space community is that we are successful in an important way at bringing unique forms of collaboration across countries and across the world. For example, the space community is birthed after World War II. And of course, people might remember that World War II ends with a really devastating event, which is the dropping of two atomic bombs on Japan. The U.S. government has researched this and carefully developed this technology as a way to help ensure U.S. superiority, really, militarily. And there's a long discussion you want to have about whether it was actually necessary to drop the bombs. Many argue that it was not required, that the government of Japan was going to surrender anyway. But you have a long story there to say uh, you have this period of the U.S. dropping these bombs, people realizing exactly how devastating they could be and actually how horrible it can be if there's more use of atomic weaponry. So this is the setting at the end of World War II. And international organizations are formed, United Nations is really formed to help ensure we have no World War III and no need to use atomic technology going forward. And around the same time, think about 1945 as India gets independence from the UK. Think about the next period, 1960, we have Ghana first and then a series of many other African countries and other countries that were colonized gaining independence. So the United Nations is forming, people are responding to the nuclear age and there's a lot of independence movements. And 1957, the USSR, the Soviet Union, launches Sputnik as a satellite, all in the midst of nuclear fears, independence movements, and this period of change of how we relate as humans to society and to the space. So what happens next? A number of new countries form uh, atomic energy research organizations. You see this in India and Ghana, and they say, I may be a newly formed government, but I understand atomic energy is really important and I have to have this as a government. Meanwhile, in the same period, well, you have great competition between the US and the Soviet Union, but also in the space industry and the space policy world, within the United Nations context, right away, diplomats get together to say, what are things we can do to keep things safer in space, in particular to avoid a nuclear war in space? So early in this period, in the 1960s, several treaties are negotiated, including the Outer Space Treaty. I'm actually so proud to be in the space field because we can celebrate the Outer Space Treaty. 1967, it says a few really important things, and there's a series of treaties that together help to ensure we don't put atomic weapons and weapons of mass destruction in space. So many countries uh, helped adopt this and have been signing it since then. Uh, most countries that are involved with space have signed the Outer Space Treaty and made the treaty domestic law, which really what makes it stick. So their own law says we won't put weapons of mass destruction in space. Meanwhile, even in a brighter sense, we see cooperation because the Outer Space Treaty has some really noble statements saying things like the use of space should be for the benefit of all they said mankind, but all humankind, and it should be for the benefit of all countries, irrespective of their level of socioeconomic development. And if you take that very seriously, it means every country, all these newly formed governments, post-colonial impacts, all of them can be space countries if they want to be, they have the right to do so, and that there's a, a support for international cooperation, and that countries should make allowances, there shouldn't be interference between country A and country B working in space. Now, these are lofty ideals, and I, I part of my research as a leader at MIT here is to basically ask, are we living up to those ideals? I think we aren't fully, but a lot of good things have happened. We've avoided nuclear war in space, which, for which we can all be very thankful. And meanwhile, there's been a consistent statement and you know, many policies that support the idea that every country around the world has the right to participate in space and to benefit from space activity. So we, I think it does lead to a, a unique way of seeing things. So for example, right now, one of my special claims to fame is uh, being somebody who is familiar with and interacting with many of the space leaders in Africa. A lot of my current, current collaborations are with uh, the space agencies or related space offices 
uh, African countries. Well, uh, thank you so much because I think, you know, first of all, I had so much fun even researching for this interview. I mean, is it who is it is the sun Ra who says space is the space is the place? I can't remember. But like I was I was just in it, right? Like reading about solar winds and, you know, you know, the electromagnetic field of the earth and the way that it protects us, you know, from, you know, debris from the sun, all of these things. And, you know, I think it's so important to root kind of what we're experiencing now with, you know, say like, you know, Elon Musk, SpaceX, like these are the things that we hear in the headlines, but really seeing like where this began, um, how, what the intentions of the people who were there when it began, um, and then even taking it all the way back to, you know, heliocentrism with Copernicus, you know, in the 15th century, right, that really kind of shaped our worldview um, and and really began the mechanical age, right? This this kind of fealty to um, order that we found in the stars and the ways in which that manifested itself here on Earth. But speaking about history, let's talk a little bit about yours. So to catch listeners up, I mean, we kind of hopped right in, but we are speaking with Professor Dr. Danielle Wood, uh, who is holds two faculty positions or a joint position, one in the program of Media Arts and Scientists, um, the MIT Media Lab, um, and then also in the Department of Aeronautical and Astronautical um, Engineer. Well, is is it aeronautic, Aeronautical and Astronautics or Aeronautical and Astronautic, Aeronautical Engineering? There's a lot of fun ways to say it <laughs> here in MIT today. Aeronautics and astronautics, but your full version also works. But we, we go with the Arastra around here just for simplicity. Oh, okay, perfect. So could you just give us like a brief overview of your background and the journey that led you to become this expert in both technology, space technology, and space policy? I'd love to. I want to add one more title because I think it'll be relevant to our discussion. I'm also the faculty advisor for students who are doing a major or concentration in African and African diaspora studies. I'm very proud of that additional title I hold. Yes, on to. yes, work. Yeah, and we'll and we'll get into that a little bit later as well. For sure. But yes, I'd love to talk about my history because I think sometimes people see me at MIT, they say, Oh, I see your faculty and I also studied here. So people often assume that, well, I just followed this natural journey that went from studying to graduate school to graduating to job. And that's not quite how the story went. So I think it's important to tell the full story. I want to highlight that I was born in San Diego as a child of a family with my father serving in the Navy. And even going back farther, I love to start my stories with great-grandparents and really other ancestors to highlight the fact that my great-grandfather on my mom's side was born as an enslaved person around 1860 in North Carolina. And we try to trace other parts of my family, but we know that uh, many of my ancestors were either enslaved people, you know, working within the cotton industry, or people who were living as recently free people, places like Florida. So I'm heavily from the southeastern United States. I can trace pretty far back and I'll be in Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina for generations back into the 1700s. So that's where I trace from. I'm very much an American story, a product of the American history we get to read. And I'm very proud of that. I'm proud to learn more about my history as I go. I grew up mostly in Orlando, Florida. That's my main childhood set of memories. I had a happy childhood, some rocky family dynamics along the way, but I'm, I'm really thankful for an amazing education, an amazing uh, gift of uh, instilling the value of education from my family. 
Uh, I'm very fortunate that many of my relatives were highly educated. Um, on my dad's side, we had a doctor, doctor, lawyer, psychologist, a lot of you know, leaders who went to grad school before I ever you know, grew up. Even my grandfather on my dad's side had a chance to get a master's degree late in life and uh, served as a pastor, a social worker, a teacher, and a community developer. So I think growing up, I never doubted that I could get any education that I could want. It was obvious. My mom was a teacher. Uh, her sister was a celebrated author and teacher. I, I knew that I'd have a chance to uh, continue education. That was a birthright that I received from my family, which I, I'm very thankful for that. So I think I entered into education feeling confident in school. I kind of loved school. <laughs> but I also, when I was in school, I often th thought, well, people ask you to do things like pick your favorite subject. And they kind of assumed often in the U.S. context, well, you're either someone who likes sort of sports or uh, art, or writing, or perhaps math. But people were often, I think, limited to kind of one of those categories. But I had trouble with the limits. I, I enjoyed many things. And if you asked me if I loved you know, math or reading more, I would have a lot of trouble choosing which one was better. I enjoyed both. And I wanted to be somebody who could celebrate both. So as I continued in my education in high school, I had a chance to I experienced a really formative uh, theater program and gave a lot of joy in uh, pushing myself to perform even when it wasn't easy. I also took the hardest classes I could in math and science. And I had a set of friends, I had my theater friends over here and like my math and science friends over here. There wasn't a lot of cross. And I thought like, this, is, this isn't quite right. Somehow we've separated students in these different categories and that's not even necessary. As I thought about college, I was thinking about the kinds of services that could help our community growing from Florida uh, a clear need is to respond to hurricanes. Every year we have a hurricane season, that even now we're experiencing that. And we are used to this pattern of there's going to be a big storm coming, uh, figure out how to make your home safe. So I had asked questions like, how could architects and engineers make homes in Florida safer during hurricanes? That seemed like a really practical way I could help society. I wanted to have a job that would influence people. Anyway, I also read a, an article about an amazing woman named Laura Steary, who you can look up these days. She's known as a spokesperson for human rights and as a, as a model. And I read about how she talked about her story of being in a very traditional community when she was growing up in Africa, in particular in Somalia, and an experience where she was somebody who was expected to follow uh, childhood marriage customs and uh, different forms of limiting of women's rights. And she was really outspoken about uh, the need to change these traditional customs. And it helped me realize that I was part of the community of black women around the world. And that even with my access to education and my opportunities, there are some common identities and experiences black women have. And that is worthwhile to see oneself as part of this collective and to look for both the richness of our, our powers and our strength, as well as the ways we wanna support each other in the challenges we face. So even around age 16 and 17, I was asking myself, how will my long-term existence in this world contribute to opportunities and, and health for black women around the world? I didn't know how to answer that. I just felt like that was an important question to keep in my mind. Then I was thinking about where to go to college. And to be honest, all these different ideas of, you know, identity as a part of the global diaspora of black people and the sense of wanting to like, you know, address hurricanes and the sense of getting inspired, they didn't quite match into like a simple answer. But someone fortunately inspired me to reach out to an opportunity to apply for an internship at NASA in the summer before my senior year of high school. I hadn't planned to do that. I think a helpful guidance counselor teacher just put something in my head and said, apply to this. It was a great idea. And because of that, it put me right in front of a major moment of history that was unfolding. I was an intern at NASA's Kennedy Space Center in the summer of 1999. A great time to be at this location. I, I highlight that it's before September 11th, 
And in some ways, we were kind of in a more calm world where security wasn't quite as intense for a young teenager spending time at a government facility. They allowed us a lot of freedom to explore the facility. And I was there on site in July 99 when NASA launched a special telescope. It's called the Chandra X-ray Observatory. And it's still operating in space. We just celebrated you know, a number of years it's been in space. And it is using uh, telescope technology to receive X-ray light coming from across the distant galaxies, especially to see uh, evidence of black holes and evidence of, of early formation of stars. And I was so excited about this idea of putting this really fragile telescope on top of a, a violent rocket and, and how it can survive <laughs> its launching and actually get to space and get above the atmosphere because you can't see the X-rays through the atmosphere and really see this beautiful science coming from these distant sources of X-rays across the, across the universe. That just fascinated me. And of course, I still thought it was important to help like, protect us from hurricanes, but this idea of being a part of teams that do this really intense and like imaginative work was really beautiful to me. I also got to see the launch of uh, two women, Eileen Collins and Catherine Coleman, who were astronauts, who were a part of this launch. And I was also seeing pieces of the International Space Station that were being prepared to be you know, put into space and constructed as part of a big location where people from all over the world could do science and research. It was also bigger than life. And yet here I was a part of that team. So I took a lot of inspiration and changed my, my plans. I, I kind of uh, temporarily put aside this idea of becoming an architect to work on, on hurricane response and thought, let me instead uh, join the space community and become an aerospace engineer and see where that takes me. But not forgetting this idea of, of working in some way to support the health and well-being of black women. That's incredible. Like, well, first of all, thank you for you know, um, walking us through that journey. I think there's so many things to unpack there, right? Like one, what is it, what does it mean to exist in spaces where people see you? You know, I think that, you know, whomever that was that gave you that application saw something was like, this is a potential, right? Um, and then, you know, it, slightly shifted your plans um, from one that was quite terrestrial to one that was a bit more intergalactic um, and a bit more expansive. And then I think also like just timing, right? Like I think, you know, Warren Buffett speaks a lot about how his success is particularly tied to the time in which he was born and the body that he was born in. And so, you know, your ability to be there at such an important time I think, in the history of space exploration, really kind of laid this groundwork for the work, you know, that you're doing now. Um, you know, you also emphasize in your work, like, the importance of making space, space exploration inclusive. How do you believe that space technology and policy, because this is something that you also studied, you know, policy, can play a role in promoting equity across different regions and demographics? This question is so important. It's actually at the heart of the mission I lead now. So years after you know, deciding to become an engineer, I had a chance to continue my studies and eventually go to grad school with great support from mentors. So now I serve as faculty at MIT. And one of the great privileges as being a faculty member is a chance to create a research team here at MIT. Uh, but here at Space Enabled, uh, that's the name of my research team, we actually have a mission statement that says we hope to aspire to advance justice in Earth's complex systems using designs enabled by space. Now that it's very aspirational. I don't mean to claim sort of you know having finished that project, but I teach a class that basically asks you know what does it even mean to claim to advance justice with technology from space and with designs enabled by space. And my, my formula for addressing the class and for kind of thinking about this in my daily work 
is three parts. Part number one is to acknowledge uh, injustice in the world and acknowledge where there are needs to make this change. Sometimes by drawing from the wisdom, especially of black women, black feminist scholars, as well as you know, many historians and political scientists who helped analyze what's happening in society. I, I require my students in my opening class to read all of Ibram Kendi's stamp from the beginning, because it's so important to start with this foundation if people don't have a common definition of what racist ideas are and like what has been the history of the US vis-a-vis -vis race and colonization and slavery. It's, we really need that foundation to move forward. After some of the grief of looking at injustice, I offer the students a design framework we call systems architecture and say, okay, we are, we're feeling low due to this reality of injustice, but we are empowered by creativity and a chance to respond. And we can use systems thinking and other forms of design to respond and, and make things that we think make the world better. But of course, that's very much informed by humility and the ability to collaborate with people who are fellow leaders from communities around the world. I then show examples of our research projects we do here in Space Enabled. A lot of the work I'm doing is asking how to design systems. So either take today's space technology and make it more accessible to those who usually don't have access to it, or to design the next generation of space technology that can in itself be designed with sustainability and accessibility in mind. So I can give you two examples. Right now, I'm so honored to be collaborating with the space agency team in Angola. I think you, you got to visit when I had the director of the space agency from Angola here at MIT, giving a great talk about founding that agency, that is Alana Joao. We spent some time together. Thank you so much for taking Dr. Joao around Harvard. That was awesome. <laughs> and Dr. Joao is a good example of a partner who recognizes the need for his country to increase their use of space technology to meet national objectives. In this case, uh, the major reason they invited me to work with them is to think about using satellite data from NASA to support the response to ongoing drought conditions in the southern part of the country where they have a, a consistent pattern over many decades of severe famine or severe drought and then other periods of severe rainfall and flood. So drought data can be collected from space. You can actually have a national map of exactly how much uh, moisture is in the soil over map patterns. You can see it weekly and get an update on uh, what's happening from the point of view of having enough water in the soil to support crops and animals. And so we are increasing this tool set for the team in Angola to use this NASA data, which is free, but complex to use. and takes a long learning curve. So we're trying to make it an easier process. That's one great example. The other side is more on the side of like the next generation of space technology. So our team is also trying to prove that we can use beeswax and other forms of wax as a fuel for satellites in space. That's kind of a future generation thing to say, how could we both increase the use of low cost and non-toxic fuels for helping to get space debris out of the way and not create as much trash in space, but also just thinking differently about what, what constitutes a space technology. So beeswax is not a commonly used space technology, although there's some examples of wax in space. We want to make it more clear that low-cost, affordable technologies can be sourced all over the world and used in a way that considers recycling and reuse without creating as much trash in space. Those are examples of how to make things more just and accessible. Yeah, I mean, like, what's... This may just sound like just a basic ass question, but like, girl, what's happening in space? Like, what you know, we are living here on the on on the land, right? Uh, we understand, you know, a bit about you know Apollo and you know colloquially, you know, um, other missions, but like, there's a lot of things that are happening above us that we don't see. I mean, there's you know issues around satellite pollution, you know, inequity. Uh, around access to technology for developing countries, like what what are some things that we are perhaps not seeing that are happening right 
above us. And and I know we'll talk a bit more about the ways in which space enabled is trying to, you know, make more equity in that space, but or in no pun intended. Um <laughs> <laughs> but like there's there's there are also concerns already that are happening in space, right? And in, you know, who has access to what regions of the earth with their satellites, right? There's there's still some as much as the treaty is trying to make it equitable, there are some kind of mirror some kind of sovereign mirroring that's happening. So there's a lot of important questions right there. I'll try to unpack it kind of going from the closest things to the more distant things, both in space and in time, if I can. I'll see how I do. Thanks, Carl. So here's the idea. So this is why I start by saying that this is a period in history in which uh, humans are making actions that are going to determine a huge feature of our relationship with Earth and with other locations beyond Earth going into future generations. And later on, I'll come back to the fact that black women have been talking about this for generations. We should hold that thought because there's this awesome poem and reference from 1893 ish. Uh, more on that later. But I want to say that uh, a key idea I want to say is that we're in a period in which uh, humans are changing the ways that we work with space technology. And it's exciting, but also a little scary. So, what's great is that you know, early on in the space era, a few countries were the main actors putting things in space. Uh, we have the, the Soviet Union being the first player, and then soon, you know, organizations in the U.S. and uh, parts of Europe and parts of Asia were getting involved. So you have uh, a few countries that kind of are the main actors launching things into space early on. And even now, launch is still happening, and mainly in a few countries, about 10 or so, maybe 15. But right now, so many countries have space programs, meaning they want to be able to buy or operate a satellite and have a nationally owned or companies inside a country that own a satellite. It's more like 60 or 70 or 80 of the countries that have this activity or this aspiration. I used to actually have a clear number, but now it's actually changing so fast that it's hard to even keep track of how many countries have space programs because there's so many, even all over Africa and Latin America, areas that you might not guess, but there's many space programs in many countries in Africa, uh, South America, Central America, the Caribbean. So we're seeing this increasing interest. And it's exciting because it means that countries recognize the need to use space technology to address their national needs. But also ask the question, well, who's going to have access to space and what are the challenges? The basic idea is, in the past, I think people kind of acted as though you could just keep putting satellites in orbit around the Earth and it didn't really matter how many there were and there's enough room for everybody and that seemed fine. Uh, but these days, uh, two things are happening. There's an idea called small satellite engineering, which is a clever innovation. I, I work a lot on this, which says, okay, you can build one big awesome satellite to last for 10 years or you can build a number of smaller ones that you know, have shorter lifetimes, maybe one or two years, they can be built faster and they can have more up-to-date technology on them. They're more affordable per satellite. And sometimes doing a big group of smaller satellites is actually more efficient than doing a few large ones to do a certain mission. A mission might be having cameras looking down at the earth or taking measurements of what's happening in the atmosphere itself, or the mission might be uh, holding sensors that we use for, like, for the GPS to send signals about location and help all of us have location measurements. As it turns out, a few companies, uh, I'll mention a few names, I mean, right now SpaceX and their Starlink satellites are really a key example. A few companies want to have large sets of satellites, we call them constellations, that they operate as one you know, owner, one company. And they have to get permission from their government, but the idea is that many governments are trying to support these companies. So they, one company might have hundreds or thousands of satellites just for themselves to do their mission of offering internet access, for example, or taking images of what's happening on Earth. That's relatively new. Like the number of satellites in space right now is rapidly increasing. It used to be like under 2,000 satellites would be kind of a, an average number. And now we're seeing 
7,000, moving up to tens of thousands soon, moving up to maybe hundreds of thousands soon. And this is unheard of. This is not something that global communities have had to coordinate on in the past. And what we need next is a much more robust way for all the countries in the world to coordinate on exactly where the satellites are and what they're doing. In the past, there's been a process that allowed us to have global aviation coordination, meaning it's possible now to have planes flying, you know, from city to city all over the world. And there's pretty good coordination in terms of who's landing where and when. We need permission each time you fly a plane from country A to country B. So that's, that's working pretty well overall. There's millions of flights every day that go really well. We don't have that same kind of coordination at the international level yet to have a clear sense of countries sharing data and sharing exactly what the plans are for so many satellites to operate. So what we have is each country is in charge of their own satellites and they have to have good national regulations and that's fine. But what we call a global space traffic management system is not yet in place. So at the earth level, we need that. So that's one need. But going beyond that, there's like companies who have the idea to go to asteroids that are far from earth between say Mars and Jupiter and then find rare materials that are useful and bring them and either use them in space or use them on earth. There's groups who want to go set up facilities to do either mining or science on the moon. There's people who are aspiring to put locations eventually on Mars. Now those, those things aren't happening quite yet. We're still trying to just do the early technology for those, but people are working on them as serious plans. And so I think they'll happen eventually, at least some of that. And meanwhile, there's ideas for a company in earth orbit to kind of help either refuel or fix a satellite for somebody else. So there's a lot of new ideas that have been talked about for generations, but might actually be realistically happening in the next 10 years or so, which is relatively soon. And the policies to make sure these are safe are not quite in place yet. Whew. Okay. I mean, <laughs> I mean, yeah, sure. Like it, it makes me, you know, it's, it's really interesting because I think that there's, it just feels like there is an onslaught of like technological innovation that's happening um, that, you know, both, you know, above us and on the ground from, you know, AI here to like tech um, and space up above us. And it just feels a bit, a bit overwhelming. Um, but I was watching one of your talks at the TNW conference and what I found so fascinating about it was I felt that it really provided a lens into the ways in which you know, space technology, we're using it already. I mean, I think you mentioned GPS, you know, as one thing, but what are other ways that we're actually already engaging with what's happening in space and it's happening on the ground in kind of like invisible ways? I think it's seemingly invisible ways. There are so many invisible ways that people use space. And I think sometimes I give up on this because it seems such so many things I have to explain, but I think it's great to take the time to remind people that space technology is already integrated into your daily life and you don't have to necessarily notice it, but I hope we can be thankful for it so people can understand why it's valuable to keep working on it. So that's great that as you go through your day, you might be doing things like getting gas, using an ATM, certainly using your cell phone, especially a map application. Uh, all of those are tapping into either satellite communication. Uh, you might be getting a weather forecast and it's tapping into uh, the ability for satellites to observe the Earth and help us with math models of the atmosphere. You might be using a communication system that's checking on helping to transfer you know, data from a gas station to you know, its home base. But also a nice surprising one is many systems throughout our day are getting their time from satellites. There's a really great set of atomic clocks that have a lot of precision on our navigation satellites. So satellites we've often called in the U.S. the GPS system. 
that are for global positioning, they work because they have a really excellent clock and that can send signals all over the place, all over the earth. There's about uh, there's enough satellites orbiting the earth to cover the whole earth. So it means that you have this chance to have everyone agree on what time it is. And that's really important for transitions of information. So if you say, I, according to the satellite, it was this time and that other group agrees, you can often align things like financial transactions. So throughout one's day, many things, whether it's the timing, the location, the, the information about the environment, those are often influencing your day, whether you notice it or not. Yeah. And how, and you know, this is the Institute of Black Imagination. How, what what should communities of color really be thinking about in this time, right? I think so many things that require space travel, right, require these large machines of, you know, country, of policy, of, you know, industry. But, you know, just as an average citizen, like, what what should we be thinking about? And, you know, if history is accurate, right? Like, many parts of this we may perhaps be left out of. And so, as a community, what should we be thinking about? What should we be doing? I love that question of what Black people can be thinking about in this moment of opportunity. And I, I want to take a very positive spin. And I have like a looking backwards version and looking forwards version. So I'm going to try to answer both. The first thing I want to say about Black folks in space is that we have been uh, thought leaders on this from the beginning of what I'll, I'll describe first as our, our time in the U.S. So I think that's where I can say a lot as a, as a product of the American system. So I want to just celebrate the Black women poets who've been talking about space for as long as we've been writing poetry here. So I'll give a few examples. I want to highlight Phyllis Wheatley. And I'm so happy because I'm in Boston or Cambridge, but right across the river over there is Boston. And we have the sites where Phyllis Wheatley was brought as a slave from Senegambia around age seven and was docked in a port and was sold to the Wheatley family. We know where that is. We also know where the family's home was where she grew up. And there's a beautiful monument now, Phyllis Wheatley, on this fancy rich street called Commonwealth Ave, where you can see a life-size you know, statue of Phyllis Wheatley and writing her poetry. So she's the first black woman to publish a book and it, we always say in the U.S., but what happened was she had to go to England because the folks in the U.S. were too racist to like buy her book. But anyway, she, she got herself published, a book of poetry, and then she got herself freed from the, the family that had owned her all those years. So Hillish Phil Sweetly, who's able to read in Latin and Greek, and she writes these beautiful words about imagination, who can you know understand and just appreciate the beauty of this. And she takes us on a journey into space, just exploring and imagining you know, stars and planets and just a mental traveling through the galaxies. And here's somebody who, you know, was kidnapped as a young child and raised basically homebound in this, you know, rich family's house in Boston. And yet her writings are just celebrating imagination in the heavens. I just take so much joy from that. I'm not even sure how she, you know, brought that all together. She was a voracious reader, obviously. So she traveled in her mind. And later we see so many other writings I've just discovered uh, through the wonderful contributions, I want to give a shout out to Professor Joshua Bennett, starting here at MIT in literature right now, this semester, who published a book called Minor Notes. I'm so thankful for the book. It's celebrating a number of uh, lesser known Black poets, only minor in the sense that we hadn't had the time to read about them yet, not because they weren't awesome. <laughs> and one of the minor note poets is Henrietta Cordelia Ray, born in 1893, as I promised, we'll get back to that date. And there's a poem by Ray, which is a dream prophecy of the 20th century as she's kind of transitioning in her life from the 1800s to 1900s 
And she writes a poem about space travel, about visions of how it will be in the 20th century, mind you, when humans have a chance to visit Venus and Saturn and discover the beautiful temples of learning and the other locations where humans are gathered and human-like creatures are gathered doing beautiful uh, community-based activities. She's taking us on journeys to Venus and Saturn and Jupiter uh, as part of a, a prophecy of how the 20th century might unfold in the 1800s, right? So this is, this is a tradition. Black people have been dreaming and visioning space for a long time. You know, we, we could add a long list. We can go into you know, uh, all the beautiful you know, geniuses that have been part of our community, Benjamin Banneker, you know, all the important people that we could talk about, right? So I don't have time for the whole list, but just want to say black folks are not left out. We, can, we all have to touch on hidden figures and the beautiful story of Katherine Johnson and say black women were there when we invented how to go to the moon and figured out how to even do the math to make that possible. So that's real, right? So we have not been left out. We have been innovators in this area. We can also go you know, further back and talk about the early astronomers in Africa who helped who were some of the first stargazers and some of the first people to kind of describe the stories of how humans and, and the heavens interact. So that to me is something to be so proud of and something we have to fight to keep talking about. There's you know, wonderful writings and books we should reference and uh, folks who are trying to help us not forget our, our space-based heritage. I was to throw in Octavia Butler and the way that she writes about Earthseed and the way that we're going to you know, fight for our justice by, uh, if needing, to take society into the stars to find your place of justice and health. But, you know, we didn't make that right here on Earth as well. So that's all there, right? Looking backwards, we've been talking about space. We've been dreaming about space for our entire existence as black folks. Looking forwards, here's a chance to make sure that in practical ways, we're making sure to use our technology for our society and for our communities. A very concrete example, I want to give an appreciation to my doctoral student who worked with me, uh, Ufum Obiemida, who was really passionate about this topic too. And she's been, um, you know, lobbying for and fighting for the idea of using uh, space technology to support people who live in prisons, which we know are predominantly overrepresented by black folks and, and people of color and people who are poor. She's making the argument that, uh, as many have made, that many people who live in prisons are exposed to environmental hazards, uh, extreme heat and cold, uh, access, exposure to floods, exposure to uh, bad air quality. And we can use side data to actually make better maps to really define the extent to which those living in prisons are experiencing these extreme conditions. So with UFOMA's leadership, we've won a grant from NASA that NASA is actually funding us to work on this topic as a form of environmental justice. So here we are asking alongside uh, people who are organizers who spend their time just emphasizing how important it is for human rights of people living in prisons to not be exposed to these toxins and really to abolish prisons themselves as a form of, of you know, societal management. And to say that it's not fair and it's an ongoing issue that extreme heat, extreme cold and floods are affecting people living in prison. So that's technology we're using right now. Satellite data can help us really map this and make that argument better. Come through. Thank you. For, thank you. Thank you for the continuum. Um, I want to shout out the the Dagon tribe for Mali, which you were referring to. Yeah. Um, I also want to shout out to Stevie Wonder because his song Saturn is actually one of my favorites. Um, you know, I was, you know, one, this is kind of going back and going forward. You've dropped a couple of hints of many incredible, particularly Black feminist writers um, and thought leaders, you know, in this space. And you have a course, uh, which I find super interesting and fascinating, called Black Feminist Thought and Design for the Future. Um, and it offers students, and you can you can double tap on this, but essentially offers students a series of six 
portals, right? Artistic portals uh, to express and really engage with this topic. Um, what role does Black feminist thought play in considering space? What a fun question. <laughs> it's so fun because I think most people wouldn't know to ask the question. And I'm so excited that I have a chance to be able to make that you know, one of my central ways of working so that it becomes hopefully eventually normal to even ask. <laughs> um, but I have to say I'm not alone. I want to appreciate you know several other Black women scholars who are kind of mixing you know, black feminist theory with space. So I'm not, I'm not only alone. We appreciate that the um, Smithsonian uh, and the, the series of museums came together with the National Museum of African American History and Culture alongside the African Art Museum and the National Air and Space Museum. And they brought together a convening of folks, black folks especially, uh, to kind of explore black spaces. And they bothered to have a section just on outer space and they allowed folks to apply to speak. And they curated such a wonderful panel I just encourage folks to check out um, this uh, claiming space event. And they had not just me, but several other you know, wonderful black women who were there to say, answer this question of what, what it meant to be a black woman thinking about space and how black feminist thought played a role. So I just want to say I'm thankful that uh, it's getting at least some airtime beyond just those of us who you know, think about it every day. But yeah, I think what's so exciting is to say that Black feminist, you know, one particular body of wisdom, not the only one, but my, my favorite right now. <laughs> Black feminists have offered uh, so much wisdom that's already helped to address some of the hardest problems that we face. You think about today's society, people like to make lists like we have climate change, we have global wealth inequality, we have environmental degradation and biodiversity concerns. We have questions of what it means to have humans work in a safe and healthy way and, and be, you know, healthy and proud of their work. and and not oppressed at, at their jobs. We have family relationships and the, the sense of what it means to be with loved ones and have healthy uh, personal relationships. All of these topics have been really deeply addressed by black women, often at a time where what they were saying was so fresh and, and really profound that even the generation that heard them write at first and heard them say at first couldn't even catch the whole message yet. <laughs> I think of someone like Octavia uh, Butler or someone uh, also like Audre Lorde who when they have written their original text, they sounded so futuristic that people could just sort of look at it as, as really almost like fiction or almost, you know, uh, the ideas that couldn't even be handled. So we read them 50 years later and we think, oh, like it sounds like it was written yesterday because the ideas were so far ahead of their time. So that's what's exciting is that uh, we are still able to continue to draw beauty from, you know, sort of our, our ancestors of writers. Plus we have amazing, you know, scholars and thinkers and artists right now you know, who follow this tradition. I want to emphasize one more thing, it's really important. I, here I am at MIT, a predominantly white institution and very international. And what's great is I, I can offer a class called Black Feminist Thought and Design for the Future, and it's for everyone, meaning I firmly believe that everyone can benefit from you know, sitting at the feet of Audre Lorde and listening to her words. I mean, she talked a lot about this, that she's not someone who's just here to talk about being a black woman just for the other black women, but is here because we have some points of view that would really be relevant to everyone to think about. So I think the important angle here is not to be exclusive and say, well, you have to be in this identity to have some wisdom, but to say, uh, let's exchange. Let's look at some of the folks who have been parts of groups who've experienced extreme oppression, but out of that have also created uh, extreme innovation. And so you know, that's one of the ideas here that uh, Black women have helped us think about intersectional identity, meaning just the idea of having multiple forms of knowing who I am having different versions of who I am, a woman, 
a professor, a homeowner, a, you know, a wife, the different forms that I play be salient at different parts of the day and using that knowledge to think about design. So one of my research areas is asking how can thinking about identity for individuals and for groups help us design technologies like my satellite systems in a way that actually considers how we can be healthy and instead of harmful. So if mm -hmm. I ask myself about design process, how am I going to affect people from different identities along the way in this technology? Uh, we can do some good work because actually we already know from history that so many of these complex technologies like space systems or transportation systems or energy systems, systems that serve society, so many of them do harm identity groups. You, they harm people with different language backgrounds or people with different skin tones or people with different uh, genders. And we can check for that proactively and start to, instead of being accidentally harmful, be proactively helpful. Yeah, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back to that because um, there's another question I want to ask, but I would love for you to double tap on the way in which this course is structured, which I find so fascinating. I'd love to. And uh, the course that I'm teaching this semester, as you well said, Black Feminist Thought and Design for the Future, has three key steps or three key phases. Phase one, you know, draw from the, the really rich wisdom uh, of Black feminist authors. I do admit to emphasizing deeply on Audre Lorde. I think she has such nice encapsulated uh, messages to give. So we spend a lot of time on our three of her key essays, especially these are the erotic, because many people have not heard the basic definition of what it means to explore. How do you know something's good? What does it mean to be, to reach kind of satisfaction in a general sense, to, to know that you're doing the thing that your heart desires. So many of us have to fight throughout our day because we're busy doing what we're supposed to do and not able to sort of do the things that actually bring us joy. Mm. And many of us don't know what it's like to enter a relationship and sort of have open invitations to share joy in healthy and non-oppressive ways. So she's trying to teach us about that phase. Then she goes on to poetry is not a luxury and helps us think about what it means to actually have emotion and expression be healthy and ongoing parts of our life. And she goes from there to ask, you know, how do we consider what it means to, you know, use our differences and our identities as part of our way of thinking about making society healthy. So I can do a lot with just Audrey by herself, but we, we can do Audrey Plus as part of our reading list. So phase one, you know, catch the wisdom. Phase two is to ask what it means to be influenced and sort of changed by experiencing art and making art with artistic collaborators. So I'm so fortunate to be able to invite professional artists who I think really exude in their artwork and are in their practice, some of these same concepts. And so each year, different artists can come and join, especially from theater, visual art, poetry, and writing. And we think about, you know, dance and other areas, and we ask what it means for them to practice and just exchange, you know, very personal conversations with the artists about how they are putting this into play in their work and their lives. We make art together. We perform a choreo poem, which is a spoken word piece set to music and visuals and movement. Movement is often brought to us by professional dancers who really you know, practice movement daily. But part of the idea is to invite students to create poetry and then invite a professional dancer to kind of move in response to that poetry. But the reason for doing that is because I think the practice of making art like that, it changes how we relate to ourselves and to the world. And out of all of that, I want to teach students to then take whatever their, their baseline field is, if they see themselves as a business person, architect, a lot of computer scientists here at MIT, that in their practice of that field, that career plan, they can also revert back to the messages of wisdom from the black feminist scholars to the experience of making that art and, and change how they're going to do their career path. I, I assume many folks here are going to become leaders in some technical field, but I want them to recall how they thought about other people, about themselves when they were making this class 
so they can then be more thoughtful about justice and identity in the future work. Okay, come on, you're out here doing the Lord's work. Like, <laughs> it's amazing. You know, and I love, uh, you know, I'm so glad that you actually, you know, walked us through your own history because I think this is also a perfect example uh, of, of our own, you know, complex identities and the ways in which you can actually carry your loves forward. I mean, I think many people wouldn't think about, you know, um, you know, a choreo poem artistic class rooted in the words of like Audre Lorde happening at MIT, right? And I think that that one speaks to your own life's journey, but also what it means and the importance of like diversity in spaces like this, right? It allows for an expansion, you know, of thought. Um, the question I wanted to circle back on, because um, as you were speaking about Black feminist thought and its relationship to space, you know, in in the history of space, right, or space exploration, we can start, you know, in the late 1940s. But what was what would that look like if we listened to Black women more? That's a lovely thought. We should make that movie. Oh, I love. We we could create a whole channel. Let me stop. Yeah, for real. But it's it's great because I think black women have have already given us so many answers that we can go back and check. Like, what is the advice we got on that? Right. So I think layer one is um, to always think about your children and your children's children. And so I'm a. I don't have children of my own, biologically speaking, but I can still take this advice. Right. Meaning, it means pausing before doing anything else and asking ourselves, what are we going to leave you know, to future generations? Which is not, there are many traditions that have this value, right? Of course, I've, I've been fortunate to, to collaborate lately with a number of Native American communities as well. And I think there's also this idea of being, being a good ancestor is this like wisdom that says, if you're going to do something now, at least count, you know, let's say six or seven generations ahead. So this, this idea is there. So I think as, you know, in this case drawing from, uh, I'll, I'll take Audrey and Octavia for a minute, they would have said, okay, you know, we're going to take these actions, but what is going? What will it mean, both for uh, the human side of our story, the uh, the Mother Earth that we you know, are currently living on, any other um, home planets we might have in the future? How will any action we're taking now affect uh, future humans, future homes that we have? And what will it mean to be healthy and expansive in our thinking about these topics? So I think the change would have been that some of the early experiments that were done in space were irresponsible. And there's an interesting example of people trying to figure out what happens if you drop a lot of small specks of almost like dust but into space and see to see where they go and, and see if you can track them. And it's not a good idea. And if, if people who are just looking at today's science um, find it interesting, but then if one asks you know, what, what's going to be the implication of this years to come, a lot of, in any, in any fields, a lot of the early work done does not make, take this responsibility for you know, long-term impacts. So I think that could have been much more thoughtful. Also the idea I mean, some things that we did, I think, would have been maintained, right? So I appreciate for many reasons, you know, some of them were more political, I guess, rather than altruistic. But, uh, for example, early on when technology that could allow satellite communication to help countries around the world communicate, the U.S. actually took a leadership role under President Kennedy in this case and created a thing called IntelSat. It's a global organization asking every country to join and saying, we can all have satellite systems, ground stations on Earth, communicate with this communication satellite, talk to each other more effectively. So... I think it's a good example where the right thing did happen, meaning many countries had a chance to you know, create connections from their homeland to space quite early in the space era. And I think that's a good, that does follow along, I think, with what the feminists would have encouraged. But the question then becomes, um, what 
could have been done with less colonial intent. Mm-hmm. And you look around the world now, and it's still apparent there are locations in places like Kenya and French Guiana, where country A, perhaps from the Northern Hemisphere, is using land of country B in a way that is basically colonization, and they're borrowing, sharing, owning you know, land for another country uh, because this other country says, well, we are the one with technology knowledge and we're the ones who are able to uh, use this land to do space activities and, and you, the local team, are not. So we, we have the right to this land and, you know, based on this agreement we have politically. So I feel like that's been part of the story that thus far space has been carried out in a way that allows those who have more power and more technical authority and knowledge to sort of take leadership without concern for this broader global view. So I think the black feminist approach would instead have so much humility and sort of what's, what could be done and what, what will we have the right to do and would approach every new step forward uh, with, with sac- sacredness and with reverence saying, mm. if we're going to put something on the moon, for example, just pausing to, to imagine how cultures around the world revere the moon as sacred and revere whatever happens there is so important to our, our view of ourselves as humans. And then to say, before we do anything that's a permanent change to the moon, how can we um, seek, in a sense, guidance and wisdom from both ancestors and from descendants and say, what would be the, the most healthy way to have this interaction with this, this location? And I think that's what's missing right now is a chance to pause before we build great machines and, and go do interesting new things on the moon. We should say things like, what will it mean to, to hold sacred and to hold as a special and beautiful gift to our future generations, this, this particular place, the moon in this case, and to leave them an excellent gift of a really profound connection with nature rather than just what humans want to create and build for ourselves right now. Mm. You know, for some reason, as you were speaking, it kind of got me teary-eyed because I think that the pause is so important. You know, I think what initially initially guided, you know, people like, you know, Copernicus or, you know, even Kepler, who, you know, 400 years ahead of his time was kind of imagining um, imagining what space exploration could look like. Um, we we don't pause to wonder, you know, wonder um, at what it means to be embodied consciousness with the privilege of existing and viewing these, you know, these glorious bodies, right? Like not only our physical bodies, but like, you know, these celestial bodies. And I get a little teary-eyed also in thinking that and this is this is maybe leading up to this next question around policy but you know i think there's also an urgency because we know what um colonization looks like and we've witnessed the artifacts of terrestrial exploration right i think you know what began as a genesis um out of europe in search of you know really freedom that then perpetuated other systems of oppression once they landed. You know, we we know what that looks like. And so, you know, what type of policies, like what's the urgency in the regulation of this space 
that maybe even we can be thinking about, right? Or maybe even asking our state representatives, our government, you know, our government um, to put in place so that these things that we hold sacred don't suffer the same effects. Now is the time. In fact, just to get to the final answer, I'll say, call your congressperson if you're in the U.S. <laughs> and ask them to put in place legislation that protects the space environment as an actual environment, meaning that thinks of space as a place like a national park that needs to be protected. Like that's a great thing to do right now, actually. Mm. As it turns out, our Congress mm. actually is uh, de- developing and kind of debating these questions actively. Now is the time when those kinds of policies can be put in place. So that's a great suggestion. I'll go back to say why. I mentioned Angola, where I had a chance to collaborate. I was also recently in Ghana, also working with their national agency for space. And in both places, uh, what we see, for example, is some of the early Portuguese architecture on the western coast of Africa. I was recently in Ghana, and I'm just a few hundred you know, uh, meters from Elmina Castle, which is um, the first Portuguese structure to kind of be there at the long term in western Africa. We see also a really interesting Portuguese fort in Luanda and Angola. Both of these are sites uh, of colonization, and particularly in the form of the slave trade. And here is not just a check question of who's going to move into Africa, but what form of colonial-based uh, uh, trade is going to happen. The Portuguese play this role of uh, borrowing technology from others about how to have ships that can travel across oceans and move cargo on humans in large scale and to start this you know, cross-ocean slave trade. They didn't invent the slave trade, but they certainly accelerated the cross-oceanic slave trade. And this leads to a whole cycle of extraction that is now, I would argue, the basis of our, our modern economic society, meaning from the 1500s till now, we've had this pattern where Raw materials are drawn from especially countries you know, near and south of the equator. And then you have centers of, of hubs of industry that have manufacturing and you know, pro- export of finished products, more so on the northern hemisphere side. And this pattern of extracting the natural products, including labor and you know, rubber and all forms of uh, natural resources, things that are mined, that pattern is so consistent still all over the world in our earth economy that we are likely to repeat that in space unless we take drastic action to change it. And this is what scares me about today's version of what's happening on Earth and in space is that we've not gotten a better idea than just extracting resources from, in this case, this planet or other locations if we can, and then turning them into products and then using them and then creating waste. And again, asking the question of how would Black feminists reconceive this? First, we would eliminate the idea of waste, both of like materials, but also of humans in a sense. What's a slave? A slave is somebody who can you can make them work and you're not worried about their health and well-being. And at some point you can waste them and you can just replace them with somebody else. So a human who's underpaid, a human who's you know not supported is in a sense wasted. Their, their actual potential is, is wasted. So today's global capitalism still is based on this concept that we're going to extract, use up, and then waste both humans and materials. And that has to stop or else we're going to literally you know drive ourselves as a society into really oblivion. But in the meantime, people are preparing to start that cycle in space right now. So I'm urgently calling for let's protect the environment, protect the humans, protect what it means to, you know, give reference to all kinds of of material and people, which we must put in policies right away, or else we're going to start our behavior in space with some of the worst aspects of our behavior on Earth. Mm. So Mm. now's the time to change it. And we could instead uh, pursue our activities in space Draw more from things like science and cultural appreciation. Like what if our going to the moon had largely to do with, you know, celebrating our shared cultural value of the moon. And of course, there's lots of science still to understand. Like those areas, I think, will help us stay on our better behavior. But if we think of it as 
a place of commerce to extract wealth, we're starting off with a foundation that's going to lead to, I'm concerned, <laughs> lead to things that I think are very concerning and to harm people in the environment. You know, I'd lo- I love this conversation. And, you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of an optimist as well, right? I'm I'm like a, the realistic optimist, right? Like this is why I really love history and really studying um, where we've been um, to one get a clue of where we're going, but to also really um, think about where our evolution sits on the time scale of like human existence, and I feel that. Where we are now is really at a at a turning point where human intelligence, particularly through the lens of mechanics and science, or maybe even who Lewis Mumford, who is a, a philosopher of the twentieth century, would call the religion of science, um, science as religion. Um, I think, especially, I think as it pertains to artificial intelligence. This for me is what I'm also excited about with with AI is I think we are also at a turning point of tapping into a different type of intelligence. Because we have we 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 have so much capacity, right? And science and the understanding of the mechanical world or or the reading of the world as mechanical is one reading of it. You know, if we're talking about Black women, Sylvia Winter would also say as such, right? That what we even understand fundamentally to be human is a very narrow band of what is possible in the spectrum of humanity. And I think in many ways, what's required is just that, is is the real shifting or expansion of the multiple types of intelligences that we as embodied consciousness have, and then really putting science and placing science exactly where it is in the pantheon of religions, meaning that there are, just like Buddhism, Taoism, Islam, Judaism, Christianity, all are different windows or lenses into what one would call God, right? Science can go there as well, which then means that there are other ways to understand how how we shift, right? Because I think that this is really about um, an ideological shift. And, you know, maybe it will happen in our lifetimes. Maybe it will not. I'm not really sure. Um, but I think this is really, and I think this is where you know, imagination comes in. This is where I think, you know, women really hold uh, this type of intelligence. I think this is what I think, you know, what are traditionally marginalized and oppressed communities really have in this pivotal moment. Because in many ways, I'm sure there's some type of scientific equation, you would know this, um, that like being on the edge, right? Being on the diameter of the circle allows for the widest angle of vision of what's actually happening within it, right? And so, you know, those answers really sit on the edge, right? Like on the margin. But let me let me not fall into a soliloquy here. This is your interview. Um, so, <laughs> you know, in, in thinking about, you know, your own path, your own history, 
uh, your own just, you know, sheer curiosity and tenacity in the area of space, you know, how do you, what, what is your practice of, you know, being in the world? Like, do you have a morning routine? You know, I, you spoke about, you know, not having biological children, but married, right? Like, what is that balance? How do you find that balance? How do you, Danielle, humanly keep your feet on the ground? Thank you. It is, uh, it's hard to keep one's feet on the ground sometimes. I feel like I'm always running. Uh, but a few things I do to keep myself uh, grateful. Uh, one is to try to ride my bike. <laughs> it may sound very simple, but um, I kind of push myself to try out a, a trail or to try to push myself a little faster on an existing you know, path I've tried. So right now, bike riding is how I recenter. And I, I was laughing with a friend the other day. I was like, well, some, some years I really, you know, make a lot of progress. And other years I'm just happy if I, if I made it to the bike a few times. But, <laughs> so I'm not here to brag just to say that it's good to have an aspiration of an activity that you know will help you, you know, find yourself and find some nature. So I think I'll, I'll offer that one. I'm really thankful to live near water. Mm. I think throughout my life, um, water has been a rejuvenating source. Being from Florida, that's uh, it's easy to find water. So right now I'm very fortunate to live in a residence hall here at MIT. I have the fortune to be uh, one of the leaders as faculty in the dorm. And so there's two faculty families and we are serving all the students and our job includes helping support the mental health and well-being of the students. And we have this interesting building that was built around 1900. It's one of the oldest buildings at MIT campus and it looks onto the Charles River. So in addition to having the, the fun job of getting to know students, I get to look at the Charles River each morning. That gives me a lot of sense of connection to the earth and to the blueness or the all the different colors that the water shows. I love that so much. <laughs> and what actually, what actually, um, what was part of your decision making in, you know, deciding to pursue a faculty position? Because you were at NASA, right? You were in like, I mean, not that you're not working in the field now, but, you know, you were in these spaces and, and that's a, that's a, that's a choice. What, 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 cause that shift or that desire it's so funny it's funny that you would ask it that way as if i got to do whatever i wanted <laughs> that was great i mean at some point there were choices but let's put it this way I, people talk about this thing like a failure failure resume i want to give mine so people can see because sometimes people hear me talk and they think oh everything's been so great danielle just did whatever she thought was good no no like there's so many rejections and failed applications that people need to know about so phase one uh was i going to grad school when i was an undergrad a really uh, smart person, a professor told me, oh, like your grades aren't good enough for grad school. So you should probably look for a job when you graduate. And I believed that for a couple of years. I thought professor must be wise. So I wasn't planning on going to grad school or didn't see myself as somebody who could possibly be faculty. That required several years later, another faculty having to be black saying, oh, but I can see you as faculty. I didn't believe him at first, but I remembered he said it. So there's just so many layers of uh, first identifying myself as somebody who could be an academic leader. Even though I got to MIT, I felt like I was kind of mediocre as a student. I didn't get a lot of experience in research at first, so I, I was a little lost. So I'm thankful for each of the mentors from all different backgrounds and races and genders who gave me advice on the way. I took the advice and I, I worked hard to implement it. So I gradually I made it to grad school, had a really tough first year, felt really kind of out of place and depressed. Eventually found a chance to work on studying like space programs in Africa and finally felt my, my groove on. I got some funding from several government agencies that helped me. But it was a big journey. Every phase of going into grad school, finding research, finding funding, and graduating was a, a big challenge. 
And then the idea that I could be faculty at a place like MIT seemed totally foreign. I gradually got the, the, the sort of hope or like the confidence to actually apply that first year I graduated, got three chances to interview and everyone said no, no faculty job for me. I had a chance to then go off and try different jobs. I worked in the government, I worked in uh, other universities, I worked in industry. So I'm glad I had really interesting experiences and I kept applying for faculty positions for about five years and getting rejected over and over again. I guess it's an important part to share. So I thought it'd be fun to be in academia because you can be a leader, you can kind of lead a team and pursue your interest. But I was not just getting to try that. I was getting lots of no's and lots of doors slammed or just lots of empty you know, lack of response. I have to appreciate the University of North Dakota. They are the first uh, university. They have a, a very small uh, group called the Space Studies Program. And they were the first ones to actually believe in me and give, give me a job offer in the university. So appreciative that they, they had that faith in me. I actually said no at the time because it was a very small community and I wasn't quite sure if I could kind of live in North Dakota year round. But it was I just appreciated them being able to see me as a faculty member. And later I had a special chance to serve uh, in NASA. In particular, uh, President Obama had nominated Professor David Newman from MIT, who I'd studied with and collaborated with as the, they call it the uh, deputy administrator, meaning the person who's under the president, the second in command of all of NASA. And during that period, uh, I worked as Dr. Newman's assistant. And I think that gave me a lot of new credentials, a lot of new experience and kind of elevated my reputation a bit. So next time I applied for faculty jobs after that, I, I did much better and, and came here. But there was a long journey. I want to want people to hear that if you get rejected for five years from the, your dream job, don't give up. <laughs> Just keep getting smarter and more experienced and get better mentors and your dreams can come true. Hey, thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Because, you know, um, you know, we do love to talk about, you know, the ways in which failure really sets you up for success. Um, and that, it, you know, that the road is not linear, you know, at all. Um, you know, as we kind of wind down, first of all, this has been so fascinating. I'm I'm not going to take up too much of your afternoon with all these other questions that I have. But, you know, I think prior to this conversation and certainly after this conversation, you know, so many people will be fascinated by your story, um, by space, like ways in which they could get involved, right? Like, what advice do you have for those maybe even just, you know, hobbyists or enthusiasts who really want to get into space exploration, understanding space technology, maybe even using space technology in their business, in their artistic practice? That's a great question. There are a number of ways people can get involved with things that I've been talking about. I always like to say that there's several ways technology from space is already influencing our country and our society, wherever you are around the world. I've actually proven my master's thesis that every country in Africa is using space in some way. So it's, it's everyone all over the place. There's no, no one left out totally. So I want to highlight you can use technology from space for communication systems, for positioning, for understanding the environment. Also, there's ways to get involved with uh, research that happens in space. They call it microgravity research or just understanding astronomy, or thinking about technologies that were started in space and then came to other fields. So those are all kind of the, the menu out there. A few very practical things. Uh, I used to work at NASA, so I can highlight a few NASA opportunities. Uh, most years, NASA has an adventure called the Space Apps Challenge. It's an open opportunity for people to uh, respond to a question NASA's asking, form teams, and have 
people use this phrase hackathon, meaning just have a party at your house and people might bring computers and, and respond to a technical idea that NASA is putting out. And often they're proposing ways to use NASA data to help solve a certain societal challenge. So if you want to have a techie party with lots of uh, fun, but also make it possible for people who are new to kind of get involved, you can host that at a school or a business or a home. And NASA puts out ideas and rules for that. NASA has many programs for school children, you know, from kindergarten up to, you know, 12th grade and for college. So you can check out NASA's education websites. Uh, you can go to intern.nasa.gov, for example, to see all kinds of programs for people at college level. And so I think it's a great resource as many free education materials, programs, and then opportunities for positions you know, for young people. I think for the general you know, enthusiast, uh, we can also highlight uh, just ways to get involved, uh, just appreciating you know, our night skies. And on one hand, I think one question we could ask ourselves is do we have access to see stars? Mm. Uh, actually, it's an ongoing question that's not totally fair. There are those who are overexposed to city lights. And I was actually just learning the other day from a NASA training that uh, overexposure to city lights can be bad for one's health, especially low-income communities of color, like black communities might have so much light that you know, actually sleeping and long-term health is affected. So we can ask, can we ourselves, but also can we take somebody with us who might not have always had access to go see a dark sky sometimes? It's mm. great that most of us who live near city lights don't even know what happens when you go to a dark sky. You see so many more points of light that you didn't even realize were there. I remember going to a quiet place in Kenya for the first time here. I'm lucky to be near the equator. I had no idea until then that we can see so much of the Milky Way from Earth just with the naked eye if you're in the right part of the, the world. So that's, of course, that's a bit of a, a paycheck to get out there. But even just going wherever you are, driving if possible, or taking a train to a you know, less you know active place and seeing some dark skies is a great place to start. And then ask yourself, you know, in what ways do you want to maintain this view for future generations? Mm. That's a lovely question I'll ask. Mm, I love that. Sky justice. Um, <laughs> really. Also, speaking of the time in which we're having this conversation, last night we also had a super blue moon. Um, yeah. Second mo full moon in August. So shout out to that. Um, and I think just since it is on the mind of myself and everyone, could you give us kind of a brief way in the ways in which artificial intelligence is influencing... <laughs> Sorry, I know there's some people are really excited outside the office. Um, you know, artificial intelligence uh, is playing in this... I'm just going to call it the space game. What role is our AI playing in the space game or what opportunities does it provide? People are certainly obsessed with AI these days and I, I use it. But I think in some ways like, I'm less impressed with AI than a lot of societies right now, but I can answer because I think what's great is, I mean, we use AI my team, for example, and you might want to say, what's a better way to be able to track some object in space we're interested in? We're doing things like making maps of mining in Ghana with the national government teams or trying to track an invasive plant in Benin and we use AI along the way, which just means we're trying to tell the computer program, here's an efficient way to know. I say that's a mine and that's an invasive plant. Can you help me find more examples of that? Or sometimes we don't even tell the, the computer. We just say, okay, here's a pattern. Can you figure out which pattern I'm looking for and help me you know, find it again? So that's one role. Then there's a the question of things like large language models where you know, we start to give the computer so much information about the way we talk or write that it starts to sound like a human back to us, right? And this is a question we could ask, can we make it easier for people using a, a spaceship or a plane to be able to operate it because they're gonna be able to get sort of advice or you know, so summarize information from these 
computer systems using large language models, for example. So I do think if there's ways to use education to make things easier for people to learn by giving the recommendations, helping them understand where fake news is, for example, by using these tools, that's, that's fine. I think I certainly believe deeply in continuing to value like human creativity mm. and trying to use AI as a, a tool next to humans, not sort of, you know, to replace humans. I think mm. that's appropriate and sort of realistic to how you know, AI works. I think we also want to keep educating people around the world so that AI doesn't become a black box that just does things to you. It needs to be something that we're engaging with, whether we're experts or users, we need to be able to engage with it in a smart way. There are certainly pitfalls that we already know about, ways that AI can kind of blind us from our critical thinking. So mm. I'm somebody who's, you know, a leader in applying AI for useful tools, but I also spend a lot of time thinking what's important as societies that we also don't get so carried away with what AI can do that we miss sort of ancient wisdom. And I think mm. listening to older ways of thinking about the environment, for example, like I have to admit, here's, here's a book that's not by a black woman, but I want to appreciate um, here at the Media Lab, one of our collaborators, uh, Todd Markover, who's one of the professors here, um, has made uh, artwork in response to the book Overstory by Powers. And it's an interesting book highlighting the forms that we don't really understand nature yet. And of course, maybe AI can help us keep track of all the data we're collecting and understand it better. But uh, it's a book about trees, basically, and about how humans have a complex relationship to trees. And uh, as somebody who spends a lot of time using satellites to look down on the earth and kind of look for trees mm. as one of my main activities, I really relate this idea that like we're just tapping into uh, so many natural relationships that we still are trying to understand, like the way that trees react to things like changes in the environment and disease and uh, the way if you've cut down part of a forest, you're affecting other trees that are left. These are things that we're, as humans, still, still trying to get connected to and mm. we need to connect to further so we can be better we can share the planet better with these with these trees and other you know, organisms. So I think the question of what life is and what counts as a, a living being and what it means to relate to things we call non-living, like rocks and the ocean and you know other forms of non-life, these are things that we should think deeper. So as, as AI is, of course, very important, I want to lay the reality of AI next to the reality of, like, what do trees, what does their reality really mean? Like, what are they doing and thinking and, mm. and thinking and Right? What is their form of intelligence? What's the form of intelligence of the ocean and the atmosphere as they are producing patterns that we're still trying to understand as well? So I think to me, AI is not more important than those other questions. I think we want to give them all their equal depth. Mm, thank you. You know, what is AI to a to a rock? Like that was that kind of got me right together, actually. Um, yeah. You know, and the ways in which I mean, yeah, no go. Rocks go have on. a form of intelligence, meaning the way that the rock interacts with the atmosphere over many generations is very complex and interesting. Kind of like the way we think of AI being complex and interesting. So to me, it's like there's a pattern there in complexity theory or some you know some other way of thinking about it that's not totally separate. They are forms of change. Oh, we're back to Octavia Butler. That is change. <laughs> And so you see it in both settings, right? You see a change as an ongoing reality that we're trying to understand. Yeah, and and to double tap on that, that wasn't actually even like a flippant statement. It was actually in researching, you know... um, for this interview and learning the ways in which rock formations have allowed us to really understand the ways in which, you know, the Earth's um, electromagnetic... um, atmosphere shifts, right? Like the poles actually switch, um, but it's actually recorded in rock formations, right? And so that's what I, when I say, what is AI to a rock? It's like, actually, no, but really, <laughs> what is like AI to a rock? Um, okay. 
Dr. Woods, this has been so fascinating. I am not going to ask you about aliens. We're just going to save that for another day. Um, (laughs) But I just, before I ask my last question, I just want to take this moment to just acknowledge the incredible, incredible work that you've been doing, both for yourself, on yourself, but the ways in which we all will be benefiting. You are really inserted in the right place, um, leading a lab called Space Enabled. And I can't imagine um, the ways in which um, your presence there, your research, um, your interest will ripple not only throughout that institution, but across the world. I mean, you're, you know, I got to meet, you know, the head of the Angola Space Program, um, but there are so many. I know, quiet and invisible ways in which you're showing up um, and really doing that necessary foundational work that many of us will benefit from for generations to come. I'm excited that we get to have this conversation with you now um, because yours is a name that will be in the canon, that will be along uh, in the pantheon of the Phyllis Wheatleys and the Octavia Butlers. And so I just want to thank you for the work that you're doing and just your presence. So you're amazing. Well, thank you so much. Before we end, I, I want to explain my background. I've been looking over my shoulder at this awesome pink dress, which we thought about moving, but I wanted to have it as part of the story. This dress uh, I received as a gift from one of the early career engineers at the Nigerian space program for my birthday in 2010. I was doing my PhD studies, interviewing leaders of space programs in Africa. And I was around Nigeria during the period of my birthday in December, and I wanted to get a dress made. And the one that I had made didn't quite fit. So the local Nigerian space engineer who was a, you know early hire there at the agency gave me the dress she was wearing because it fit me better than the one I had tailored for me. So I just want to give a shout out and appreciation of my birthday dress in 2010. It reminds me of you know what we're here for, we're here for create community among the innovators of space of the today and the future. Ah, amazing. So the last question, Dr. Daniel Woods, if you had everything at your behest, what is the world you imagine for the future? A world with no waste, which would mean that everyone would have all their needs met because we'd be using everything and valuing all of our material, but also all of our creativity and imagination. So when we eliminate waste, we unlock the door for mutual health and well-being for ourselves and our environment. I mean, we didn't even send you that question. That's 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 the thing to get it. Um, absolutely. What does it look like if we think about the entire life cycle from the genesis of design, from the genesis of creation, and honor each part of it? Yeah. Um, well, this has been an absolute pleasure. Um, where? Can people reach out to you, connect with you, find out more about what you're doing and what you're working on? Thank you. You can follow me on social media. I think it's called X now, but I'm at space underscore enabled or space.enabled on Instagram if you want to see what we're doing here at MIT. Okay, we will put that in the show notes. Dr. Woods, thank you, thank you, thank you again. It was such a pleasure. Thank you. It's really a privilege, and I look forward to being in the archives of the Institute for Black Imagination. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Thank you so much for joining us on this enlightening journey through the cosmos with Dr. Danielle Wood. Let us know your thoughts over on Instagram and Twitter at Black Imagination. We love comments and can't wait to hear what you have to say about this special episode. Leave us a review over on Apple Podcasts and be sure to check out this conversation and others at blackimagination.com. Remember that the universe knows no bounds and together we can unlock the power of the cosmos and inspire generations to come. Stay curious and keep dreaming.